Assalamu alaikum, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to a, another Tuesday session. Woo! Um, I wanted to start with some really, really sweet news. Um, we, Ramin shared with me um, a message back. We had been trying to get a hold of Huda, the high school student that the professor talked about in his khutbah last week, um, just to try and show some support. Um, and Ramin was able to track her down through Instagram and send her a message and send her um, the you know a copy of the khutbah. Um, and today we got a message so beautiful from her family. It said, Salam, thank you so much for sharing this with me. My family and I watched it together and felt so much strength and support from hearing the words of a scholar. We greatly appreciate all of the love and support. If you can, please share the letter writing campaign with the members um, who would like to get involved. Jazakallah khair. And so they sent us the link to a writing campaign um, that CARE is sponsoring. And it's um, so far, um, it's, it's there's it's a hashtag we stand with Huda, um, and I'm sure you can find it if you go to any of your social media um, on Care. It's through the Action Network, um, and it's called Protect Students Stand with Huda. You can go in there and you can put your name and information, and it'll send a letter on your behalf. So far, it's 2,650 letters that have been sent, and it's a very strong letter. It, it basically recounts what happened to her, but. It's really even more upsetting um, because the, the, you know, the backstory uh, uh, that they share is that the high school principal actually um, went ahead and had approved her, um, her speech without reading it and apologized for doing so. And then later came out and said he never approved it and that, you know, and that people uh, allowed people to say that she ruined the graduation. Um, and there's a lot more here that is really upsetting. But um, so please do find that letter writing campaign and sign on. Um, I think if you go to actionnetwork.org or if you, I'm sure if you go to CARE, uh, the website, you can find it. So we can, um, you know, hopefully stand in support. This is just outrageous. I mean, this would not obviously happen with any other faith tradition. So um, very, very frustrating. But, you know, on the, <clears throat> on the good side of things, I think it, it just it makes you feel um, so good when you can stand up and make a difference, you know, and, and support, you know, these families so that they know um, that people feel their pain. I was telling... Um, the professor that I'm sure like this is one of these experiences that changes your life as a person and to hear from a scholar you know someone you know a scholar speaks so passionately about how you were absolutely right to stand for truth and that you know someone should have warned you that it's going to be a difficult path but that this is what we need our you know our Muslim daughters to do I'm sure that that had a very very powerful impact on on her and so I, I'm really happy that that we were able to track her down thank you for, for doing that and, and all of that um, so I thought I would just share kind of um, a few little stories. I mean, I, you know, it's like I, some of these things are sort of stupid, but I, um, you know, I try to share, I guess, the impact of like the transformation of hearing khutbas and trying to, or halakas and khutbas, um, and trying to be a lot more self-reflective and aware of your impact in the world because obviously in halakas you know we're learning about our accountability and we're learning about um, how our actions have such profound you know cumulative impacts on other people and other things and the, the earth and animals and all of that so interestingly I thought I would just share um, one story um, this week <laughs> we we actually um, living here in Ohio one of the really beautiful things is um, you feel the impact of nature as we've said before and I thought it was really um, powerful when the professor was talking about how our life now is very um, sterilized. I guess we're, we're very distant from nature. It's sanitized. You know, it's like um, you don't necessarily 
think about things, even if you go to the grocery store and you buy meat, you know, it's like it shows up in a package that's wrapped, you know, you don't interact with nature so much. But coming to Ohio, you know, between um, the greenery and the cicadas, which we've talked about, and just the sounds, the birds, the, you know, there's a lot of critters around here. And it's been very fascinating to just experience them in a new way. Like, you know, in California, we used to watch movies and we would hear like, you know, these jungle tracks. I would think of them as like, oh, how interesting. They're trying to present nature. And so they brought in a jungle track, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like a soundtrack. Well, actually here in Ohio, that is what we hear. We walk outside the front door, you know, and it's loud and it's, it's beautiful. And it reminds you of your connection to, you know, to God. Um, so we've been finding a lot of critters in our, our yard and I've, you know, just in the, in taking, you know, our dogs out and stuff, I find dead birds, dead, you know, animals and whatever. And the other night, um, I actually, um, we found a bunch of bunnies, um, little baby bunnies. And um, it, it was actually a, a bit of a um, up and down kind of thing. I, one of our students here, Rami, I caught him one day and I had to do a confessional. I felt really guilty because I was out with the dogs and I heard this screech, like, Rrr! and I looked over and one of our dogs had picked up a little like critter and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was either a mouse or a rat. So I thought, oh God, okay, no, you know, let nature take its course. I'm not gonna kill it. I don't know what to do with it, you know? And so I didn't really intervene. And then I eventually, you know, brought the dogs back in. Then I went out to, to look and I'm like, oh my God, it's a baby bunny. And then of course I started having thoughts like, oh, this is like Bambi, this could have been my friend, maybe I was supposed to save it. You know, I started feeling really guilty, like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I heard the scream and I didn't intervene. So then I, I spent the whole next day like praying to God, you know, I'm so sorry that I didn't, you know, do what I needed to do. And, you know, if I have an, the, another opportunity again, you know, I will not just sort of step back and, and not intervene and, you know, I will be more careful, you know, and this was actually, you know, the, the promise that I made. So sure enough, the next day, or the, I think later that night, I took the dogs out again and I, you know, and I thought there was only one, so I didn't think there could be more. So our husky managed to find another baby bunny and grabbed it and like had it in its mouth. And I thought, no, let go, you know, and I kept like trying to hit it until it didn't drop it. So I went and I grabbed a bone and made, you know, oh so drop it. But the, these were very fragile babies. And so by the time he dropped it, it died. And I thought, oh my God, okay, that's two. So I put it, you know, in the bush thinking in the morning, I'm going to find it and I'm going to bury it. So when I went back in the morning, I found that one and then I found a third one and it was already dead. It was, had died, you know, from some other critter that ate it. So I thought, okay, that's three. So I buried three bunnies and, um, and then I thought, oh my goodness. Um, and then I, I'm like, I better check now, you know, maybe there are more. So sure enough, I dug in the bushes and I found another really tiny baby. And I thought, oh God, okay, what do I do with it? You know, and thank God when I had, um, when I had done my confessional with Rami, <laughs> it comforted me. Um, he had told me that this had happened to him and he had called the wildlife center. So I called my vet who connected me with the wildlife center and, you know, found out that, uh, got a message that said, well, if you want us to come pick up, we'll charge you $125 to come pick up this bunny and, or, you know, pick up whatever you, you found. And I thought to myself, oh my God, that's really expensive, you know? And then I thought, no, the right thing to do is to spend God's money on saving an animal, you know? This is the right thing. So I left a message and then I started calling the other students here, like, oh God, what do I do? I found this baby bunny, you know? And then just as that was happening, the, the wildlife people called me back and said, oh, you know, we'll tell you where you can take it. It's not gonna cost any money. Um, 
so alhamdulillah you know didn't have to spend the money um and the students like had their first you know like baby rescue uh, bunny rescue mission and came and picked it up and you know transported the bunny and as we were picking up this bunny we found a second bunny so we managed to save two bunnies and it was really it was fun and so we'll share some pictures on our weekly email but you know i i thought to myself and then uh, so mara brought henry in her bunny suit to um we have to show, you have to come up and show, show Henry. Oh, he's not there? Okay. We'll share some pictures in the weekly email at the commercial break. Yes, Henry, our mascot, brought his bunny ears um, to wear in honor of our fallen bunny brothers and sisters. Um, but, you know, it struck me that, you know, this is not something that I think I would have done before in California. I might have just gone, ew, and oh my gosh, I, you know, and just ignored it and not let it go. But, uh, you know, between me not being able to kill bugs and now, you know, like having bunnies and, you know, getting tested too, you know, because it's like you, you, you know, I, I made a promise to God that if I had another opportunity that I would do it, you know, be better the next time. So I felt like, okay, I have to keep my word and I'm going to do this. You know, these are the little things that, you know, I, I'm really grateful for because I think that even though it makes your life a little bit more difficult, it makes it more um, intentional and more like aware and conscientious, you know, and honestly, after we did the bunny rescue mission, when I went to pray, I felt so good. Like I, there was a rush of just like peace and, and happiness and, and just pure joy um, that came to me. And I like, this is not something that you normally feel, you know? And it was like, you, you know, when you do good things, you feel good about them, but this, it just felt different. And, and so I took that as a sign that, you know, like, I don't know, it just made me very, very happy. And so that is, was its own reward, you know. And um, so anyway, just to share like a little story. <laughs> but, um, you know, so for, for whatever that's worth, if you find any critters in your yard, you know, call the wildlife people. <laughs> and the people actually at the wildlife center were really nice and they, they thanked me for caring about the wildlife, which I found also very striking. Um, because that to me, you know, I was thinking, well, of course, well, why wouldn't you? But as I thought about it more, no, I, I think the vast majority of people probably wouldn't take the time and wouldn't necessarily care. So, you know, and wildlife obviously is such an important part of our world. And, and especially now when we understand just how God creates every being that supplicates, you know, our, our creator, um, it just, you, you just feel like you really have to honor the existence of every, you know, every being, every creature. So anyway, um, may, may Allah, you know, elevate those three bunnies and may Allah protect the two that survived. I'm kind of, I feel like a, an affinity. We need to find out what happens to them. So I think they feed them and, and set them back out in the wild. So I'm, I'm guessing, I'm hoping. Okay, but anyway, I'm looking forward to another amazing session and um, thank you for joining us. So inshallah, uh, tonight we talk about Surat Al-Nazi'at. Um, Naza'at is another Mecca surah. Uh, many reports say that it was revealed after Surat An-Naba'. And 
this poses uh, some interesting questions about when Surah Al-Nazat was precisely revealed. Um, if it is indeed revealed after Surah Al-Naba, as so many sources say, then in order of revelation in Naz'at would be number 81, 82, something like that. Which would most likely place it as a late Meccan surah. Um, in Naba was reportedly revealed after Al-Ma'arij, which we have not talked about. Uh, but so if a Naba is revealed after a Ma'arij, a uh, Ma'arij itself is elite Meccan surah, and a uh, Ma'arij was revealed quite late in the Meccan period, well after the Isra and Ma'raj, and shortly before the Hijrah to Medina. So, if true, then in Naz'at would be quite late in, in the Meccan period. But at the same time, there are, um, you find in the traditions uh, claims that in Naz'at was the first time that the Quran uh, cites the precedent of Musa alayhi salam. That the first mention of Musa, Moses, as Nabiullah in addressing the Prophet alayhi was in Naz'at. But if that is true, if that is true, then Naz'at would have to be an early Meccan surah and cannot be a late, be a late Meccan surah. And between these two camps, it's very difficult to place in Naz'at what we can say, we, we know that it is definitely a Meccan surah, everyone agrees on that. But was it revealed early was it revealed late um, is very is not clear my own inclination although I I, I could be easily uh, be easily proven wrong but my own inclination is in Naziat for it, uh, many different reasons seems to me like an early Meccan surah. Um, but I have no explanation for then the reports that say that it was revealed after Surah Al-Naba. Um, and even if we assume, as inshallah we'll get to when we talk about Surah Al-Naba, that perhaps Al-Naba wasn't revealed after Al-Ma'arish, um, because the Nebuchadnezzar has the same type of uh, questions. 
um, then why are these class of sore that we are told were revealed late, we are told in the tradition were revealed in the late Meccan period, but at the same time there's evidence that they were in circulation uh, even in the mid-Meccan period, that they were circulated, that people recited them, uh, that Muslims and non-Muslims were both aware of the sore. Uh, and I'm, you know, Allahu Alam, of course, because you have to keep in mind that a lot of the Islamic tradition is still in in manuscript form. So a lot of our scholarly investigations um, rely on either what's published or in my case, I, I have a fairly huge manuscript library, including the Quranic uh, commentaries that are still in manuscript form. But um, I, uh, what I and as like most scholars in, in the in, in the world today do not have access to the entire manuscript library. A lot of manuscripts uh, are inaccessible and um, even not cataloged um, and still held in private libraries or held in places like the Vatican or held um, uh, in Israel or, or, or so on and so forth, which makes access to um, a lot of manuscripts difficult. So it, it's not, you know, it, it might be that in the future, future scholars would be able to date so that we have a difficult time dating more precisely. Okay, now, in the case of Naziat, though, my sense is that this doesn't have a big impact on the message of Naziat. In some sort, as we've seen, it does make a difference whether they were revealed in early Meccan period or late Meccan period. The difference in terms of how we interpret the surah and what how we go about methodologically figuring out the intention of the surah. But in the case of al-Nazi'at, um, I don't think that's the case. Allahu alam always, but I, I, you know, Allah knows best, but I, I don't think that that would be the case. And we'll find that in al-Nazi'at, what will occupy us and will engage us in Surat al-Naza'at from the get-go are the first five verses, first five ayat in Surat al-Naza'at. This is, these first five is where so much of the discussion about what al-Naza'at um, the, the tafsir of al-Nazi'at, the interpretation of al-Nazi'at. Um, and of course, I'll, I'll, inshallah, I'll ex ex explain why in all of that. Um, and the first five is the qasam that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
takes in Surah Al-Nazi'at. So that's the oath that Allah is articulating, but as we will see, it, it turns out that this oath is particularly important. Um, as often happens with Qusar al-Sur, so we, uh, there is a whole, and we've talked about some of these, the, 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 uh, uh, there are a number of Sur where the Qasam, the oath that Allah is taking, uh, has an overwhelming bearing on the message that the surah itself is conveying. Okay. So, notice وَالنَّازِعَاتِ غَرْقَ وَالنَّاشِطَاتِ نَشْطَ وَالسَّابِحَاتِ سَبْحَ فَالسَّابِقَاتِ سَبْقَ فَالْمُدَبِّرَاتِ أَمْرَ So these are the first five. And I'm just, uh, the, the study Quran I've noticed, it does a very literal translation of the Qasam, uh, probably trying to preserve the, the, the literal sense of the words. Um, so the وَالنَّازِعَاتِ غَرْقَ the study Quran says and those that rest violently وَالنَّاشِطَاتِ نَشْطَ by those that draw out quickly وَالسَّابِحَاتِ سَبْحَ those that glide serenely فَالسَّابِقَاتِ سَبْقَ and those that race to the fore outstripping فَالْمُدَبِّرَاتِ أَمْرَ and by those that govern affairs. So of course that begs the question right away when, the, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying by those that do this, by those that do that, by those that do this, what is the Qur'an referring to? What is Allah referring to? So, And I'll, I'll paraphrase again in a literal sense first. When Nazi'ati Gharqa, we understand from the, if we are just doing a literal translation, we would understand from Nazi'ati Gharqa is that something is grabbing something else and pulling it or extracting it. Something is drawing something out. Something that glides or, or especially something that glides or that floats calmly or serenely or quietly. And a sabiqati sabqa Something that outstrips in the sense that something that is able to place ahead of something else. فَالْمُدَبِّرَاتِ amra, Something that manages something or something that governs the affairs of something. So, of course, right out, 
we have the first question is what is the Quran referring to? And the second question, which should be as pressing as the first question, is why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use this terminology? Why refer to things by their functionality without naming them. When Allah wants to name something, Allah names it. When Allah wants to name stars, Allah names stars. When Allah wants to name angels, Allah names angels. When Allah wants to name wind, mountains, trees, whatever, it's named. So, but here, in this oath, in this qasam, Allah swears by the functionality, by the function performed, but doesn't name what is what is sworn by. And the question that begs itself right away is, well, why? So, with this surah, because there is a lot and there's always a challenge on how to present material uh, with a minimum of confusion and, and, and repetition and so on. With this surah, it will be useful to take the first going through the traditional approaches and then the Sufi-esque approaches and then I'll tell, tell you my approach. So, with the traditional approaches, there is a considerable amount of disagreement as to what that oath is referring to. At the outstart, let me tell you that some said that those things that Allah is swearing by, in traditional sources, many said that they're angels, that Allah is swearing by angels. And many said lesser amount, but so the majority, let's say, said that they're angels, but then second in popularity. Uh, is that they are Allah is swearing by stars. Others said that Allah is swearing by arwah, souls. Others, still others said, no, Allah is swearing by the what the movement of horses or other cattle. And still others said that Allah is swearing by what happens in battle. Now, without going into the evidence of each school of thought, remember, all of this is within the traditional. 
why don't we go into the evidence of each school of thought? Because that then will take us a long time to to go through those who say angels, why angels, those who say horses, why horses, those who say arwah or souls or spirits, why that is, and those who say battle. In other words, their claim that they got this from someone who was close to the Prophet and heard some interpretation or another raises the type of questions that scholars spend years and years studying. But what we can say is that linguistically, the words used can in fact support any of these interpretations. And as we will see, uh, I'll share with you a, a passage from Razi, where Razi basically says, yeah, the, the words can support any of these interpretations. Uh, and and Razi then proposes his own interpretation. But let's unpack the words a little bit more so we get a sense for what these words are saying. So, al-Nazi'at, as we said, Naz'a al-Shay' or Yanza'a al-Shay', the word Naz'a means to outstrip or to grab something. When you, when you outstrip something from something, that's a Naz'a. The 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 miracle of the expression here is to say nazi'ati gharqa the word gharqa after nazi'at you would just need to know a lot of classical arabic to know why it's so eloquent but it is profoundly eloquent and what it connotes when you put and Nazi'at and Gharqa together is that either something is pulling something from a great depth so you are you're coming and you are literally pulling something that like sinking in depth or interestingly enough that you are <clears throat> coming and grabbing something harshly an igraq means a tawaghul it means ighraq like in arabic when we when we talk about someone drowning we say gharaqa <coughs> or gharik means someone who's drowned and the reason we say that is gharaq itself means a tawaghul a tawaghul means to go something to go deeply into something so the reason we call someone who drowns a gharik is that they the figuratively is that they've gone deeply into the ocean 
they've sunk into the ocean, right? So, when we say anazi atigarqa is either you go to someone who is in a state of depth, like someone who sunk down, sunk somewhere, and then you pull them, or you pull someone harshly to cause, to, with the effect that there is a great amount of discomfort. When it comes to Nashitati Nashta, a Nashitat connotes something of great energy and movement that has an impact upon something else. And when you say Nashta, when you put these two words together, it means that the impact of the, of the first cause upon the second cause is overwhelming, but as opposed to the first ayah, it is not harsh, it is tender. So, if you put these two ayahs together, it could be saying, someone is pulling someone harshly, pulling something harshly, and in the second ayah, something is pulling something tenderly. So, in traditional tafsir, they said, well, this makes sense. When angels come to collect the souls of unbelievers, the way these souls are extracted is that these souls are extracted harshly. in a way that causes the unbeliever or the sinner or whoever is not saved great anxiety and great discomfort. And Anashitati Nashta would refer to the taking of the soul of believers or of pious people where the soul is taken gently and tenderly, where it doesn't cause discomfort. Now, of course, um, I think you guys heard me said, say before that, you know, in the many times that I've been hospitalized for one reason or another, 
Allah wills that I always end up being hospitalized somewhere where, where next door to me, usually there's someone dying. And uh, subhanAllah, I mean, yeah, you see people who die and their, their, their process of dying is extremely unpleasant. Not painful, but terrifying. Uh, you could tell that the, that the person who's dying is terrified. And then you see people who die very peacefully and um, so in a lot of traditional tefasir they said this refers to the angels who come collect soul collectors those who collect the souls harshly and those who collect the souls gently so then how about as-sabihati sabha the third ayah and he said, well, if this oath refers to angels, then it refers to the fact that angels travel from the dimensions of the divine to our dimensions with great ease and without difficulty. And again, the words would fit that type of narrative. That, and it's actually an eloquent way to to refer to the to the uh, movement with ease, like the angels move from through the heavens through dimensions easily. But then, for sabiqati sabqa, then what does that mean? And in traditional tafsir, those who said that this is referring to angels perhaps had the biggest challenge with this because of the language again, where it sabiqati sabqa then would have to mean that there are angels are ahead of the rest or well let's stick with angels the angels are ahead of and what they argued is that angels are ahead of all in complying with god's orders and in uh, achieving obeying god etc and then amra they said well then here again the oath referring to angels is that angels are charged with taking care of various affairs around in, in existence everything from recording deeds to collecting deeds to in old um in uh, uh, old medieval belief was that the angels are even responsible for uh, making sure that ships sail in, in, in the sea, making sure that clouds move correctly, that angels are responsible for the rain that falls. In other words, they imagined that angels performed a lot of physical functions in our physical world. So all of this is within the realm of the traditional tafsir. Now, those who said that their stars 
or said that they are souls or said that they are uh, ref refers to warfare again use the words but interpret them upon the paradigm that they are that they're utilizing so for instance if you say that they are souls so you are talking about well this actually to take um something like stars first you you say well in gharqa refers to the the fact that some stars move at great depth at great distances when Nashi taught in that there are shooting stars that move with ease from one place to another, they usually say that these are constellations and that God is swearing by constellations, which as a Razi says is highly problematic. And Sabiqati Sabqa that then you will find that they imagine that certain stars can actually race before other stars, things like that. Rorzi sort of sums up this matter, I think, in a in in a the most helpful way. Again, with all of this within the purview of the traditional approaches still. Is that he says the fact of the matter is is that these words are general and that they refer to functionalities. Uh, so that, in fact, these words can apply to a variety of things as long as they perform functions that these words can be used to describe. Then Arazi says, in his view, there is no reason to say that they indeed apply to angels or to war or to horses or to stars, but he proposes that in fact that this qasam applies to al-arwah. Arwah are souls. So I'm going to just read the Arabic first and then I'll paraphrase it. فَالنَّازِعَاتِ غَرْقَ هِيَ الْأَرْوَاحِ الَّتِي تَنْزَعِ إلَى اعْتِلَاقِ الْعُرْوَ الْوُسْقَى أو المنزوع عن محبة غير الله تعالى والناشطات نشطة هي أنها بعد الرجوع عن الجسمانيات تأخذ في المجاهدة والتخلق بإخلاق الله سبحانه وتعالى بنشاط تام وقوة قوية والسابحات سبحة ثم إنها بعد المجاهدة تصرح في أمر الملكوت فتقع في تلك البحار فتسبح فيها فالسابقات سبقة إشارة إلى تفاوت الأرواح في درجات سيرها إلى الله تعالى فالمدبرات أمر إشارة إلى أن آخر مراتب البشرية متصل متصلة بأول درجات الملكية الملكية فلما انتهت الأرواح البشرية إلى أقصى غايتها وهي مرتبة السبق 
اتصلت بعالم الملائكه وهو المراد من قوله فالمدبرات امرا. So what he's saying is is that if we understand this this oath in Surah Al-Naz'at that they are uh, that they apply to souls then he says the first ayah وَالنَّازِعَاتِ غَرْقَ are applies to souls that deviate from Mahabbatillah Ta'ala that from Allah's love. The sense of loss and Gharqami as we said is sense of abysmal despair or sunken despair that results from deviating from Allah's love. refers to the opposite. Souls that struggle to come back to Allah and to anchor or to nestle themselves in Allah's love. And that in doing so, as Razi puts it, at-takhalluq bi-akhlaq is that Allah has a sifat. Allah has, as we said, characteristics. And as we said before, these characteristics are virtues. All the characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are virtues. And the challenge for a Muslim is that as they draw closer to Allah, is to embrace the divine virtues to beautify to the self and to embrace as much of the qualities of divinity as possible. So as you elevate yourself to more and more of the attributes of godliness, then you reach the stage of a sabihat that is the ability to perceive the divide between mulk and malakut with ease so you you are able to see into the world of malakut although you live in the world of mulk And as you do so, you elevate yourself more and more to the attributes and the qualities of angels. Now, Arazi's proposal about Arwah has a lot to it that makes sense and has, you know, we could discuss these for hours. They, 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 they make sense in some parts or, and there are a lot of questions that they pose but anyway 
Now, although you find in the tafsir niche, in the traditional tafsir, um, many that copied what Razi wrote without necessarily attribution. Sometimes they attribute it to Razi, sometimes they don't. But you find, uh, and some, you know, say, well, it's either angels or it's arwah. But they, methodologically, what is important about Arazi's uh, proposal is the acknowledgement that these words are broad enough to apply to several categories, angels, as we said, stars, and so on, and that they would also fit applying to if we apply them to arwah and we we understand them as describing the struggles of ruh as it deviates from allah and gets lost or as it aspires towards allah and draws closer Interestingly enough, within the realm of the traditional uh, literature, um, Ibn Qayyim writes a very beautiful passage in his book on love about Surah Al-Nazi'at, uh, his book, Rawdat Al-Mushtaqeen. And Ibn Qayyim comes to this passage and he seems to agree with Al-Razi that it applies to um, Arwah to, to souls, and that it describes souls when they deviate from the divine and become like Gharqa. And as we said before, uh, the signs of deviation from divinity is uprootedness, lack of meaning, anxiety. The whole, the whole gamut of endless questions that have no answers that human beings live with and struggle with. Um, and the, the contrast to that, the drawing closer to Allah and especially embracing the qualities of godliness within and internalizing them. But for Ibn Qayyim, he focused on a particular aspect that Al-Razi doesn't really explain. And that is, how can it be that love, loving Allah, can elevate one to a status that you become al-mudabbirati amra, that you become like those who manage affairs. And for 
Razi says that you 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 elevate to effectively um, transcending materiality. You become beyond materialism. But Ibn Qayyim seemed to want to work through this more methodically and carefully. And it's a very long passage, so I'm just going to read parts of it. And the reason I'm reading it is because of how interesting it is, intellectually interesting it is. So he says, I'm going to first read it in Arabic and then I'll paraphrase. إن العالم العلوي والسفلي إنما وجد بالمحبة ولأجلها وأن حركات الأفلاك والشمس والقمر والنجوم وحركات الملائكة والحيوانات وحركات كل متحرك إنما وجدت بسبب الحب جميع حركات العالم العلوي والسفلي تابعة للإرادة والمحبة وبها تحرك العالم ولأجلها فهي العلة الفاعلية والغائية بل هي التي بها ولأجلها وجد العالم فما تحرك في العالم العلوي والسفلي حركة إلا والإرادة والمحبة سببها وغايتها بل حقيقة المحبة حركة نفس المحب إلى محبوبه فالمحبة حركة بلا سكون وكمال المحبة هي العبودية والذل والخضوع والطاعة للمحبوب وهو الحق الذي به وله خلقت السماوات والأرض والدنيا والآخرة الله يحب أسماءه وصفاته ويحب ظهور أثارها في خلقه فالله جميل يحب الجمال عليم يحب العلماء جواد بحب الأجواد حي يحب الأحياء وفي يحب أهل الوفاء شكور يحب الشاكرين صادق يحب الصادقين محسن يحب المحسنين and so on so what he's saying is and, and part of the reason I'm reading it because in modern Islam we become alienated from this tradition and we think it's only Sufis who talk about love but Ibn Qayyim was as you know a Hanbali and the student of Ibn Taymiyyah but he says, we have to understand that the reason for everything in existence is love. Love is the reason that planets exist, stars exist, the sun exists, the moon exists. Not only that, but love is the reason that they move. And in the longer passage, he explains why, why love is the reason for movement. He says, indeed, the very existence of angels and the movement of angels is again based on love. And the existence of animals and the movement of animals is again based on love. كل متحرك إنما وجد بسبب الحب. So how is that? He goes into a discussion about the nature of volition, the nature of irada, and he says 
I didn't read this part of, of the quote, but he basically says that you have to understand that irada or volition, there is willful volition, there is compulsion, where volition is overcome, and there is an irada tabi'iyah, which means volition that doesn't have intentionality behind it, but is natural movement. And he says that the way Allah acts is through willful volition. Allah doesn't, there's no coercion upon Allah, and there is no natural volition or irada tabi'iyah where it is natural but not willful. It's all willful volition. And he deals in 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 the longest in the longer discussion, which I, I didn't read this part. He talks about that Allah is always motivated by in in that woeful volition by love, and that love is what sustains existence and sustains life and but for that love nothing would exist but the part that concerns us the most is that he says what Allah loves for all human beings is to reciprocate that love and to reciprocate Allah's love means to love what Allah loves. So Allah loves beauty and wants for everything to be beautiful. Allah loves honesty and wants for everything to be honest. Allah loves loyalty and wants everything to Allah loves gratitude and wants for everything to be to reflect that. Allah loves truth and for every Allah loves for everything to reflect that. So Ibn Qayyim says building upon this whole arwah issue on the Qasam is saying when a human being loves what Allah loves. It is not that the human being is going to suddenly be able to perform miracles. But that by reflecting the attributes of divinity, which Allah loves, that that human being would have the power of appealing to divinity and being heard by divinity and the power of affecting their physical environment through dua and prayer sometimes to far greater extents than angels. So the, the whole philosophic discussion that Ibn Qayyim presents, and it is very long, is that it's saying that ultimately you can become so so dear to Allah's heart 
or, you know, figuratively, obviously, that as the Prophet والسلام, there are people who if that there are people who if they um, if they ask anything of Allah, Allah will give it to them because of, of their status. I tried um, in, in my, in, of course, I mean, I tried in, uh, I noticed there is a tafsir Ibn Qayyim that Rami uh, downloaded for me um, from the net. And I noticed that that entire discussion above love was deleted by the editors. Um, which is very interesting. It's very interesting, again, for, for modern Muslims. Um, because I, I've asked, I also looked at the modern tafsir to see if any of the modern tafsir seem to be aware or to, to engage. And not even tafsir al-Sha'rawi or uh, Sabuni or uh, even Alusi, who's not, I mean, who's from a couple of centuries ago, um, engaging. But anyway, I mean, it's something to reflect upon the way that the modern Islam and pre-modern Islam. Okay. So all of this is within the realm of traditional approaches. Even Ibn Qayyim's discourse on love. And so from Ibn Qayyim's perspective, the oath that Allah is presenting in Surah Al-Zariyat is, it's as if Allah is saying, I swear that I'm swear by those who deviate away from me until they drown in their own misery. And I'm swearing by those who come close to me until they become as if, um, until they develop an angelic nexus with me. That's in the Qayyim's perspective. And they become part of the Mudabbirati Amra, so that if they pray, you know, I might, I might not want to bless uh, or I might bless an entire country just for this one person. You know, that, that Ibn Qayyim actually gives an example of that. He says that there are scholars where Allah just, you know, or there are pious people that Allah did all types of things for the entire population just because of this person or that person because they had become so powerful in their closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the Sufi-esque tradition, this Qasim is understood in ways that one would, I think, be justified if they said that Razi was sort of stealing a bit from the Sufi tradition when he said that it's a Qasim of Arwah. Because in the Sufi tradition, this I'll, I'll start with with the quote, then I'll explain. أقسم بالنفوس المشتاقة التي غلب عليها النزع إلى جناب الحق غريق في بحار الشوق والمحبة 
التي تنشط من مقر النفس وأسر الطبيعة أي تخرج من قيود صفاتها وعلائق البدن كقولهم شيء ناشط أي خرج من بلد إلى بلد So The Sufi Esque tradition starts out with Nazi'ati Gharqa and say it is not talking about a person as they deviate from the path of Allah, but it is talking about a person who is in their original condition needing or longing for Allah. It's like you are standing far away and you're longing. And was say, and saying that that longing is inside all of us, and what we do with this longing is that we often feed it unhealthy, um, unhealthy. Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Mustajabat. Uh, uh, um, we give it unhealthy responses. So it's like feeding, you're hungry, so you feed yourself junk food. That lung begins inside of you. So the way so what we do with this longing is that we try to fill it with everything that actually does not um, it does not address the hunger. So we we fill it with, we re respond to it with sex, we respond to it with money, we respond to it with arrogance, we respond to it with, um, in the modern age, drugs, and even in their age, alcohol, uh, all of which will only make that longing and that hunger worse. And it keeps getting worse, and the more you feed it, it gets worse. When do you get to Nashitati Nashta? Is that when this longing is addressed in a healthy fashion, in a correct fashion, by understanding that what your soul is longing for is closeness to its maker. Your soul is longing for its origin of divinity. And the more you elevate, you become like a Sabihati Sabha. So the more you are able to understand that then it's literally as if you are flying to the Lord. And as you do that, Sabiqati Sabqa is a reference to basically the, the um, who can come to the Lord first. Because in, in the Sufi-esque imagination, Allah is eagerly awaiting. It's like Allah is always there, waiting with open arms, saying, come to me. And in the Sufi-esque imagination, 
Allah is, um, you know, I don't want to use the, but, but they, they use the word that Allah is, is always chagrined or unha- sad when people are lost and they won't come to Allah. And that Allah remains waiting. And so as-sabiqati sabqa is like saying, you've arrived, you finally come to me, welcome. So that, that's the type of thing. And in the Sufi literature, the oaths, they, they, you, there's so much emphasis that the oath can only be understood as the, the, this, the, a description of the, this dynamic and that Surat al-Nazi'at itself, the, 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 the name of al-Nazi'at, um, which means wrestling something, what are you wrestling with? And the Sufi escalator is saying it refers to wrestling with yourself, to save yourself from yourself. So before I um, get into the third approach, I want to, to, to go into the surah first because it would be it would lack context if I just told you the third approach uh, without understanding something about the structure of the surah itself. And it's a short surah, but still. Um, okay. So, Surah Al-Naz'at, the first five ayat, as we said, is the oath. And we've talked about the traditional approach and the Sufi-esque approach. Then Surat al-Nazi'at will briefly talk about those who have a difficult time believing, those who resist belief, and then it will move to talking about Musa salam, Moses specifically and then it will go back and talk about creation human creation vis-a-vis the rest of creation and the ultimate result so after the oath Surah Al-Naz'at starts talking about the, the end of times or the final times. يَوْمَ تَرْجُفُ الرَّاجِفَةِ تَتْبَعُهَا الرَّادِفَةِ قُلُوبٌ يَوْمَ إِذٍ وَاجِفَةِ أَبْصَارُهَا خَاشِعَةِ يَقُولُونَ إِنَّا لَمَرْدُودُونَ فِي الْحَافِرَةِ فَإِذَا كُنَّا عِظَامًا نَخِرَةِ قَالُوا تِلْكَ إِذًا كَرَّةٌ خَاسِرَةٌ 
إنما هي زجرة واحدة فإذا هم بالساهرة. This takes us to verse number 14. So, first let's do the, the literal translation and then come back. So, um, on the day on the day when the quake, the study Quran says, on the day when the Quaker quakes and the successor follows upon it, hearts that day shall tremble with eyes humbled. They will say, are we to be restored as we were before? What, when we have become decayed bones, then say, this then would be a ruinous return yet it shall be but a single cry then behold they will be upon a wide expanse so this is the transition before mentioning the story of Musa Okay. So, first, يَوْمَ تَرْجُفُ الرَّاجِفَةَ تَتْبَعُهَا الرَّادِفَةَ الرَّاجِفَةَ, which literally the day the earth shakes. What does تَتْبَعُهَا الرَّادِفَةَ means? mean? There is, in, you find in traditional approaches, discussions about what happens after the first trumpet and whether there are two trumpet blows, two trumpets or three trumpets. We're not going to get into that because a lot of it is, is not entirely reliable. But that, to put it simply, is it that there is a ruinous earthquake? Then 40 years later comes the final day? Or is it that there is an earthquake and shortly after that is the final day? That's the traditional debate. And there is no way we can resolve it. But, you know... It's sort of it's a, it's a scary idea that if there is a major ruinous destructive earthquake and then the final day doesn't follow until 40 years later because you can imagine how life would be in those 40 years. Um, so when it says that Baharadifa, this is seven, ayah seven. Um, the successor follows it. The whole thing is what is the successor? as we said, and how soon thereafter. So, terrified hearts is not surprising. That at that time, it is a point, it is a time of great fear and terror. Those who realize that, in fact, they were wrong 
all along, and uh, the hereafter is the truth. Um, you can imagine how their gaze is going to be. That expression basically means that those who were saying, how can it be that we are going to come back? Hafira is in it has an idiomatic meaning. It, the, uh, the word for digging in Arabic is hafr. It's the same origin. Hafira is whatever trace you leave upon the earth, having moved upon the earth or lived upon the earth. So if, if an animal walks on the ground and leaves footsteps, that, these footsteps are known as hafira. Or if you walk and um, any way you disturb the earth, or having lived on, on earth, you let's say you dig a hole, that's a hafira. If you build a fire, that's a hafira. If you disturb the dust or the snow when walking, that's a hafira. So, is it that we will be returned again to our previous life? Is that possible? After we have become, um, what's a, uh, um, decayed, decayed bones. Nakhira uh, is hollowed bones. When you say Nakhira Susu Fishajar, it means uh, termites hollowed out woods. So Nakhir is when you become, the bones become hollow because they've decayed. Is, is self-admission and the study Quran I don't agree with the with the translation here but anyway it's, it's self-admission that it's like saying oh my god now that I have not believed and I realize I'm actually going to come back this is bad news it's like saying this is awful news I, it's a, and we've encountered this before when the Quran says that people will be saying, I wish it was the end, I wish there was no resurrection. Um, okay. You find in the traditional tafsir a lot of discussion about what is a sahira, and it's interesting because linguistically, sahira is, is something that's flat. And so the Quran is saying upon the end, upon the hereafter, all people will be collected on a flat plane. But traditional sources go into these long discussions about whether that flat plane is going to be on earth, whether it's going to be on something that we just don't know where, whether it's going to be up in the heavens, whether it's going to be on earth, whether it's going to be deep underground. 
some traditions even they go into that it's going to be Sham, that it's going to be Syria. Uh, others say it's going to be Jerusalem. Um, but it's uh, sort of the collect the the it, it, and uh, none of it is reliable. I mean, the, all we could say is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that people are going to be collected on a flat plane. Where that flat plane is, Allah ala, only Allah knows. Okay. Now, interestingly, and perhaps not surprisingly, the Sufi Astafasir don't understand that that they necessarily refer to the final day. But they tend to see this as allegorically referring to the process of searching and finding Allah again. So, the day that the, the Quaker quakes, the, what quakes is the heart. And it trembles. The, the day where you actually make the decision to come back to God. The day where your heart finally stops resisting and stops being stubborn. That Bahar Radifa is the process, what succeeds after that is the process of irtiqa or the process of elevation towards the Lord. That it describes the sort of the, the, the steps that Precede or the necessary steps that precede the elevation, and the emphasis in Sufi al-Tafsir is on humility. As long as you lack humility, you're not ready. As long as you are resisting and you're saying you think that whatever you think about yourself, um, you, you you continue arguing, you continue seeing you're not ready. Um, so again now we get to the in surah in Naz'ad the reference to Musa alayhi salam Suddenly, Surah Al-Naz'at then says, هَلْ أَتَاكَ حَدِيثُ مُوسَى إِذْ نَادَاهُ رَبُّهُ بِالْوَادِ الْمُقَدَّسِ طُوَى إِذْهَبْ إِلَى فِرْعَوْنِ إِنَّهُ طَغَى Rhetorically, asking the Prophet ﷺ, هَلْ أَتَاكَ حَدِيثُ مُوسَى It's a literary device. It's like saying, haven't you heard about Moses? When Allah called upon Moses to go to the Pharaoh, why go to the Pharaoh in Nahu Taha? And we'll get to Taha. Now, in traditional tafsir, it's not surprising that it is understood 
more or less as the words sound, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to Musa Allah called upon Musa Nadahu Rabbuhu bil wadi al-muqaddasituwa there is a discussion as to why the area is called al-wadi al-muqaddasituwa is that the name of the valley Tua or is Tua means the twice blessed place because it is believed that this is the same area that um, Ibrahim received the revelation and Musa received the revelation. So it's a twice blessed area. Anyway, it's more like, it's likely that it's just the name of the area. Al-Wadi Muqaddasituwa is an area. That God called upon Musa in that valley and told Musa, sent Musa to the Pharaoh and to confront the Pharaoh and that to tell the Pharaoh, notice the language here. This is um, seven, uh, no, 18, no, wait, 17, no, 18 and 19. So, translation, go on to Pharaoh, just, let's come back to the word Taha, uh, and say, it's, it's like saying, um, you know when you say someone, someone, uh, why don't you eat? Uh, like, uh, so it's like saying, um, do, do you want to be purified? Uh, and so that I might guide you to God. Now, the traditional tafsir, they usually make note of that style and say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Musa السلام, when you go to the Pharaoh talk to him talk to him gently um, don't confront him harshly some in the traditional tafsir take this as an indication, they, they usually go into some discussion about how um, when you want to counsel people in power, uh, you must counsel them, counsel them politely. But, you know, that's their opinion. Um, others, like Arazi, says something interesting. He doesn't necessarily see this as a matter of counseling people in power, but he, he, sa he says that this is a matter of dawah, of how you invite to Allah's religion generally, whether people in power or otherwise. Um, so he says, وَيَدُلُّوا عَلَىٰ أَنَّ الَّذِينَ يُخَاشِنُونَ النَّاسِ وَيُبَالِهُونَ فِي التَّعَصُّمِ كَأَنَّهُمْ عَلَىٰ ضِدُّ مَا أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهِ أَنْبِيَاءَ وَرُسَلَةَ That those who 
are harsh. And those who are fanatic, extreme, um, meaning that those who um, make religion hard upon people are against what Allah commanded for Allah's prophets and and it's you know that's of course is, is the more common uh, um, again it, it's it, it's noteworthy just because in modern Islam so many people seem to forget that and to invite or when they teach Islam they don't teach it gently and nicely uh, they teach it harshly um, okay so let's go back to Izhab ila Fir'auna innahu taha Go to the Pharaoh because the Pharaoh in the study Quran it says rebelled. The, the issue is what is Taga means. And most traditional tafsir then say the following Taga ala al khaliq bi an kafara bih wa taga ala al khalq bi an takabbar alayhim wa sta'abadahu. It's not rebelled but what the pharaoh has done he's become a rebel and an oppressor Taha with the creator by denying the creator the way that you are unjust with the creator is that you deny the creator but the way that you commit Tuhyan with the created, with human being, is to enslave them. Again, very important for modern Muslims, because modern Muslims often forget that if you live under someone who enslaves you, that's Tughiyan. And then of course we know the Farah Ayat of Kubra Fakazabal Asa Thum Abbarayasha Fahashara Fanada Fakala and Arabukumul Ana Fakadahullah Nakala Al Akhirata Wan Ula that we know what is going to happen is that Allah demonstrates and it's referred to briefly and in summary in Surah Al-Nazi'at that Allah demonstrates the miracles to to the Pharaoh the Pharaoh resists and refuses and says Ana Rabbukum Al-A'la which um, let's see how they this is 24 um, I am your Lord Most High. Interestingly, the traditional tefasir pause here and have a rather interesting discussion. Pharaoh must necessarily have known 
that he didn't create the sun and the moon and didn't create the stars and the earth. I mean, so how can he say, I am your God? Now, of course, we know historically that in old systems of beliefs, kings and royalty generally believed that they are endowed with elements of divinity. Rarely would a emperor, king, or whatever claim to be the sole god of the universe, but that they are endowed with divinity. But what is interesting about the traditional discussions about the Pharaoh is that they say the following, that the Pharaoh كان رجلا دهريا منكرا للصانع والحشر والنشر وكان يقول ليس للعالم إله حتى يكون له عليكم أمر ونهي بل المحسن إليكم أنا لغيري والمربي لكم أنا What this means is that Dahriya was the way that in the classical tradition you refer to atheists. Those who were what we call today existentialists, people who believe that you we exist by coincidence and live and die by coincidence, they're what they, they, used, they used to call them Dahriya. That the Pharaoh believed that whether this is historically accurate or not, that's not the point. The point is, is the theological point they wanted to make, is that the Pharaoh knew that he didn't create the heaven and earth, but the Pharaoh didn't believe in a God. And so what he was telling people is, you must not listen to no one, or you must listen to no one but me. And so his sin against Allah was that he, his command to people was absolute obedience. Now, of course, this has clear, powerful implications for the whole paradigm of despotism. Because if Theologically, Pharaoh's sin was that he was telling them, you must obey me absolutely, and you should have no opinion but my opinion, or you should not disagree with me at all. And that you, I am the source of good, I am the source of evil, God is not a factor, should not be a factor in your thinking. That makes despotism and absolutism a sin in itself. And this is why in, in modern Egypt today, which the fascist regime that governs Egypt today, you find theologians that work for the government attempting to rehabilitate the image of the pharaoh. So one of them, an absolute moron, came up with a theory that the pharaoh survived uh, the flood, the you know the passing through the Nile, that he wasn't killed, 
And in fact, he was saved and he repented and became a good Muslim. How he knows that, only Allah knows. But and it, it, the, the, the reason is clear. It's because they know that the ruler of Egypt is a pharaoh. You know, he told the Egyptian people, listen, don't listen to anyone but me. Exactly like the pharaoh. Theologically, absolutism and despotism was always theologically problematic in Islam. It is only after colonialism that Muslims got very confused about whether absolutism is a blasphemous condition or not. But you, you examine the history of Islamic theology, Shia or Sunni, by the way, absolutism was always, and that's actually what distinguished when Muslims used to, if you look at any of the Ahkam al-Sultaniyah, when Muslims would talk about, they would say, well, there is the Khilafah system in which people don't obey, in which people only obey other people to the extent that it doesn't mean disobeying God. And then there's the Mulk system in which people obey people absolutely. And that's not Islamic. And then they have, they, they would talk about a third system, which is basically what we would call today anarchy. It, it's remarkable that in their, what effectively saying is that they, they, that what distinguishes the Islamic system is that the sovereign doesn't have absolute power. That became lost after colonialism. So that's a traditional approach. How does the Sufi-esque approach deal with this, with the shift into the story of Moses? The best way to summarize it is that the Sufi-esque approach says effectively as, for instance, Ibn Ajiba says in his tafsir, Musa is an allegory, Musa ishara ila qalb, an allegorical reference to the heart. What Fir'aun ishara ila nafs, an allegorical reference to um, the self. And we've encountered this before in the Sufi-esque tafsir they always say, confront your pharaoh. All of us have an inner pharaoh. That pharaoh is the self. That pharaoh is pig-headed, selfish, greedy, egocentric, insensitive, um, all of that. And that pharaoh wants immediate pleasure, immediate satisfaction, impatient, while Musa, like Al-Khidr, by the way, in Sufi literature, is allegorically always represents the Al-Qalb, which is in, in, in English usage would say the better self, the self that can be empathetic, that can be caring, that can be loving, that can be giving, that can be patient, 
And in the Sufi traditions say Allah was saying to when Allah says to Musa, go confront the Pharaoh, Allah is telling you, go confront your Pharaoh. Your Pharaoh always wants to worship itself, regardless of what trappings it uses. Tradition, custom, nationalism, whatever. But it is ultimately always about number one and self-satisfaction. And Allah is consistently telling you, send your Moses to confront your Pharaoh. And the extent to which you elevate is the extent to which your Moses successfully confronts your Pharaoh. In Sufi poetry, you get some of the most beautiful, like Sha'ar Junayyid, for instance. Junayyid has entire poems in which he describes how the pharaoh of the self crushes the Moses of the heart in the most brutal ways. And in Junayyid, uh, says that... Um, Junaid even said, you know, in every, every broken heart, you will find the Pharaoh responsible for the heartbreak. I mean, it's a very beautiful poem. It's just it's saying that when human beings stump together and they think they love each other, it is what destroys a, a the love is the Moses of the self. The, the Moses can always corrupts through acts of pure selfishness. But anyway, the pharaoh. no, you said the pharaoh. The pharaoh. I can't hear you. Sorry. You said the Moses, but the pharaoh always corrupts the self. Oh, yeah, or the pharaoh corrupts. Yeah, not not the Moses corrupts. It's pharaoh corrupts. No, the Moses is always the, 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 the heroic struggler against the Pharaoh. But in Junaid, like he sees the Pharaoh as like the like, huge ego. And it, the Moses has to confront bravely and persistently. And then eventually the ego fizzles. After Allah says, in this, which again is the same for traditional and Sufi, in 26, that in this is a lesson, like reflect upon this. وَالْأَرْضَ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ دَحَاهَا أَخْرَجَ مِنْهَا مَاءَهَا وَمَرْعَاهَا وَالْجِبَالَ أَرْسَاهَا مَتَاعًا لَكُمْ وَلِأَنْعَامِكُمْ So this would take us to 32. And this part of Surah Al-Dhariyat is supposed... Nazi'at. 
the, the posing the obvious question do you think you uh, it was your creation was more challenging to Allah than the creation of the heavens and earth and all that is in existence um وأغطش ليلها وأخرج ضحاها this is uh, 29 see how they translate 29 study Quran says God raised high its canopy and fashioned it darkened its night and brought forth its day the only thing I want to flag about this section because it, your ancestors noticed it, is that if you read these verses carefully, you find that the surah or the section gives you sort of an order of creation. So, first the heavens, then the earth, but Life on earth, comes as a, as a final step, which of course centuries later is very consistent with what we know scientifically, that earth formed and then atmosphere and water and so on. This is very contrary to medieval systems of belief. Medieval systems of belief was that the earth was created first and then the heavens and stars were created to surround the earth. So medieval scholars, Muslim scholars, struggled with this because it was consistent with the epistemological systems of their age. So they, traditional tafsir do some interesting some just say, Allahu Alam, God knows best. Well, you know, we, this is what God said, you know. Others try to explain it in a way that um, is, is um, um, forced. But, of course, in modern age, it, it's um, okay. The other thing is, notice, again, something that your ancestors noticed. Water and vegetation and elsewhere the Quran says we've made from water every living thing. And, and created the mountains. That whatever is on earth is not just for you but for you and all that lives with you. And this is, again, very consistent, which is very inconsistent with medieval systems of belief. Because medieval systems of belief didn't believe that other than human beings, there anyone entitled to anything. Uh, but in the Quranic text, consistently, you'll find that whenever the sh human beings are told that 
God created this for you, you they're also told all living things have also have the same right. So you, sometimes in traditional tefasir you get interesting discussions about um, the rights of Anan, like uh, Grace was mentioning the rabbits early on. Um, the, you know, the, you, you, we've talked about this before, the, the, the huge tradition about saving life and, and um, that you're commanded to do that and furthering it and so on. Um, in Sufi Ask Tafasir, um, the only the, you don't there's not much of a difference between Sufi Ask Tafasir on this part of the surah than the traditional Tafasir, uh, except that. You find that Sufi Astafasir some in, interesting focus on ayah number 29, because some of them understand as a reference to the inner dark self. Uh, is when um, when you create darkness intentionally. So it's an unusual word in that means that you've covered it to create darkness. So in if you as if Allah created darkness and then added to darkness light which we know that the original condition is darkness. The light is the exception, it's, again, scientifically. But in Sufi Astafasir, they see this as a reference to um, the self if left without the, if left without the additional energy of drawing it closer to Allah. That if left to lethargy and apathy, then the natural drift is towards darkness. If you do nothing, you will drift towards darkness. Um, in, you know, in the old systems of old political science, not that old, but in World War II political science, they used to talk about the iron law of oligarchy, that if you do nothing, the natural drift is towards oligarchy, authoritarianism. So in order to resist oligarchy, you need to take affirmative step. In this same type of idea exists in, in a lot of Sufi nature, that if you do nothing, you will drift towards darkness. You need to do affirmative things to avoid darkness. Okay. Uh, 
فأما من طغى وآثر الحياة الدنيا فإن الجحيم هي المأوى وأما من خاف مقام ربه ونهى النفس عن الهوى فإن الجنة هي المأوى يسألونك عن الساعة أيان مرساها فيما أنت من ذكراها إلى ربك منتهاها إنما أنت منذر من يخشاها كأنهم يوم يرونها لم يلبسوا إلا عشية أو ضحاها Okay, so Al-Tam Al-Kubra, we know that the, the, the hereafter or the, the final day is referred to in the Quran with a number of uh, asma, a number of names. Um, among them is Al-Tam. And Al-Tam is any calamity that befalls one is what you would call a tom. And when the Quran refers to a tom al-kubra, um, it's the calamity in the sense of, not, not in the sense of um, uh, a disaster, but in the sense of finality, the sense that there's nothing beyond it. That day, human beings will remember what they've done, or and as we said, the because we've encountered this before, and we don't need to go over it again, that the biggest challenge in the hereafter is confronting the truth of what you've done unmitigated by obfuscation, obscurism, um, excuses. So you see the complete effects of your deed with perfect recollection. And just remind you that in, in my view that you actually, it's, it's it's played back to you, like we see a, a a movie in our day and age, that you you see your entire life being played back to you. So, those who have been inequitous and preferred life on earth and last halakha i told you the 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 example of um if one is told you know if allah gives you a choice and tells you i'm going to create you and you have a choice either 60 years on earth of absolute pleasure followed by 6000 years of misery or 60 years of misery followed by 6,000 years of absolute happiness, uh, what would be your rational choice? So, whatever say, Athar al Hayat al Dunya, it is the failure to see beyond life on earth or to give the life beyond life on earth its due. فَإِنَّ الْجَحِيمَ يَلْمَأْوَى Hell, الجحيم, hell in its 
various forms is the result. Uh, this is 40. As for those who fear standing before their Lord and forbid the soul from caprice, um, we'll, we'll come this, to this back. We'll come back to this. Okay. So those who resist al-hawa now it doesn't surprise you that in the Sufi tradition there are just numerous discourses about what is al-hawa, the ailments of al-hawa, which is whim, and how hawa contra- contrasts to mahabbat, to love, and hawa also contrasts to al to reason. Um, So, in traditional tafsir, I mean, the, the, you, they just say the obvious that if if Ilhawa is doing whatever you want, instead of caring about what God wants. But in Sufi literature, I've just selected from a little bit from the, their discussions on Ilhawa in this context. Among them. Um, Junaid and several Sufis after Junaid say that Usul al Khataya Kullaha Thalas that all sin goes back to three elements of Hawa Al Kibar arrogance Al Hirs in this context means greed while hasad envy and a kibar is failing to understand the self in relation to all selves egocentrism if you were had perfect insight and you could see the placement of all selves in their proper place so that no self infringes upon the other self that would cure a kibar but that would take a great deal of wisdom that the vast majority of human beings don't have so arrogance is a product of egocentrism that you only see and you, 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 the perception of the world is although theoretically you know that the world existed before you and the world will continue probably to exist after you, the way you experience the world and the way you live through the world is as if it began with you and it will end with you. Al-Hirs Greed 
um, in in this context, it is um, everything that leads to addiction to indulgence. Um, the satisfaction of indulgence, although rationally you know it doesn't last, rationally you know that whatever you do affects, resonates throughout the world, throughout, you know, as in philosophy they say, you know, no one can throw a pebble without changing the course of history. Um, It's the same idea that Although perfect reason would would lead us to that knowledge, but al-hirs or greed in this context makes you think of what I want. Um, And hasad envy is, in this context, they don't mean it, they mean by envy as the way modern Muslims use it, but they mean by it that social influences where you measure whether you are okay or not okay depending on how you see your what surrounds you socially so if everyone you know has certain type of good goods then you start thinking i'm lacking uh that what we often think of what we need in terms of what everyone else has. Uh, perfect transparency would tell you what you need, not in relation to what everyone else has, but what you truly need, whether other people have it or not. It wouldn't even enter your, your mind. Uh, of course, that would destroy the world of modern marketing and so on. The other thing I'll, I'll share with you from the Sufi S tradition is um, a, a statement that I've, I, I couldn't, I was trying to locate it in, in books yesterday, but I didn't have enough time, but it basically says, دخل الناس النار من ثلاثة شبه أو رصد شك في دين الله وشهوة أو رصد تقديم الهوى على طاعته ومرضاته وغضب أو رصد العدوان على خلقه. Um, some people thought that this is a hadith, but it's not. But it's it's a statement that's often repeated. So that people often end up in hellfire through because of three things. شُبْهَ أَوْرَثَتْ شَكَّ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ means what you develop as a doubt that becomes like an obsession um, that doesn't no longer responds to anything rational but it is a doubt that you've become addicted to the most common one is 
the existence of suffering. That, and you see this all from, it's been like this for centuries and it will be like this for centuries and or as long as, is, well, if there is God, then why does suffering exist? It, most people who raise this are not willing to read philosophically or study it philosophically or even discuss it philosophically or even rationally. It becomes an emotive objection that justifies breaking the bounds that surround them. It's like the belief that my parents don't understand me. Regardless, they just don't understand me. And so I don't, I shouldn't listen to them anymore. Sometimes, in rare circumstances, it could be actually so valid that they don't understand you that it justifies rebellion, but that's rare. The vast majority of people who use a shubha like that, like, well, why do children suffer? Their, their objection never goes beyond an addiction to the objection itself. Because if you actually read in the philosophy of suffering, it's a long study. Or even the mathematics of suffering, which is very interesting. Anyway. Shahwa awratha taqdeem al-hawa ala ta'ati wa mardati. Or a commitment to a shahwa, a commitment to a desire. Now, all human beings have have a, a an underbelly uh, a um, Achilles here heel. All human beings have a shahwa. A shahwa differs from one person to another. So one person, their addiction could be pornography. Another person, their addiction is that they want to constantly fall in love. They always need to be in love with someone. And they get bored and then they want to fall in love with someone else. Someone else, it could be food. Someone else, it could be degrees. Someone else, it could be books. No, books are not. <laughs> no, books are never sin. Take that back, sorry. Um, but there's always an Achilles here. And so much sin is justified in order to satisfy the Achilles here. You know, you see this, someone who, you know, a Muslim that wants to drink alcohol. And suddenly they unravel the entire face just so they can drink alcohol. Or a Muslim that wants to sleep around and suddenly they unravel the entire faith just so they can have sex with out of wedlock or i've even you know and there's some sinister forms of it i remember uh, uh, which in, in my book is a fahisha is that a, a guy who was an imam who um his whole thing is that he was constantly marrying and divorcing marrying and divorcing that's an abuse of what, of what 
a law-made marriage is sacrosanct institution, not for you to keep marrying and divorcing and then say, well, the law allows me. That's an abuse of process, an abuse of rights. Okay. وَغَضَبْ أَوْرَثَ الْعِدْوَانَ عَلَى خَلْقِهِ And spite or vindictiveness or anger that makes you justify aggression or injustice against other human beings. This is when, which again, a lot of people that commit injustice against other people, they justify it by a narrative of, I'm a victim. Rarely do people say, yeah, I'm an aggressor and I'm proud of it. Most people turn themselves into a victim and that's why I do the things that I do. But they're wrong nevertheless. Okay. That was from Ibn Qayyim. Oh, that was Ibn Qayyim? Yeah. Or you found it in Ibn Qayyim? Yeah. Ibn Qayyim, is that what you said? Ibn Qayyim, yeah. Am I hearing you right? Yeah, yes, Ibn Qayyim. Oh, okay. So he stole it from the Sufi later. Because it's, well, I, I know that I've picked it from Sufi sources. Um... Okay, so then, لم يسألونك عن الساعة أيانا مرساها فيما أنت من ذكراها إلى ربك منتهاها إنما أنت منذر ما يخشاها كأنما يوم يوم يرونها لم يلبثوا إلا عشية أو ضحاها. So this is from forty two to forty six, which comes to the question of the hereafter and typically in traditional terms they tell you is that the biggest or that the the Meccans would constantly challenge the Prophet by saying well if in fact if it's true that there is a hereafter then tell us what when it is and if it's true that you are a prophet then tell us when is this going to happen and that this is traditional tafsir typically tell you is that Allah basically instructs the Prophet to that this this is outside of your field of authority talking about when the hereafter is those who have been very skeptical about the ahadith about the fitan uh, like kitab ibn hamad or kitab al fitan are typically referred to it's because of ayat like this i'm one of those people that the, the there are a lot of ahadith that tell you what's going to happen at the end of times. But in surah like this, according to a lot of tra- tra- traditional tra- tafsir, the Prophet was instructed not to talk about when the end of times is going to be. Because that's not his purview. It seems inconsistent 
that then the prophet would sit and say, well, before the end of times, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. And, um, but this is a big theological question. Sufi astafasirs don't say anything different about this point. I mean, they, they basically say that um, uh, the same thing as traditional tafasir say at the very, about the very end of this world. The, I've said nothing still about the third approach, which is mighty. Before we, we continue, just a quick correction about Razi. Razi says that uh, I misspoke that he is not the souls that uh, drift away from Allah, but for the, these are the Sufi orientation. But the Nazi for Razi are souls that actually drift towards Allah. الأرواح التي تنزع إلى اعتلاق الغر والوسقى أو المنزوعة عن محبة غير الله تعالى. So souls that uh, he has a double negative, which is strange. But anyway, that uh, that gravitate towards God, and then the then the rest are sort of gradations of closeness to to Allah سبحانه وتعالى. Uh, the other thing I, I um, forgot. To note, it's also a discussion in Razi uh, that that's um, just um, interesting. Is when in the ayah "Inna la marduduna fil hafira," which uh, verse number ten, "Ida kunna izam al nakhira eleven." Uh, Razi has an interesting discussion about. I mean, it's not it's not as extensive as uh, as one finds in some other sources, but that if a human being after a human being dies and disintegrates, and that some of his interlocutors at his time objected that if resurrection was true, then the human being that is resurrected is different than the human being who died. Um, so it, it's the question of what is a human being? And if the body... Uh, disintegrates or decays and then you bring back the same body or body that looks the same what in what way is it the same person and of course you know uh, Razi has a, a, a discussion about that which is interesting I mean he doesn't say anything that surprising but it's interesting that he doesn't just dismiss it by saying, well, uh, the soul is the same, so the body is just an external um, shell, as you would often find in Sufi literature. 
that would be their response. And Razi had a discussion sort of a bit more nuanced than that. Okay, so let's now get to the... So, if you notice in both the traditional and the Sufi-esque approaches, um, they both are aware that the Qasam, as we said, refers to functions. And the words used um, seem to be broad. They, they could apply to anything that fits the functions. But the, the challenge that you have is that you have the Qasam then shortly after the Qasam, and in fact, right after the Qasam, you have a reference to the story of Musa and to Pharaoh, and then beyond that, we get to um, Allah rhetorically confronting human beings with the question, do you think that you are a bigger deal than that do you think you're a bigger deal than the heavens and everything else that Allah created? And so we go back to this whole thing about unity in within the surah and thematic unity within the surah. And is there a way that we can read the Qasam that would be consistent with the thrust of the Surah and what other indicators of that? So let's step back and look again at the Qasam. So when Nazi Ati Gharqa, the challenge with the, the, the word Gharqa, as we said, is that it could have a positive connotation and in some situations it could have a negative connotation or sorry it, it has a negative connotation in some situations it could have a positive connotation but it is what pulls something and, and part of the, the, the challenge with the construction is that does it is it something that thrusts something into the deep or is it something that pulls something out of the the, the deep so that's when that's the first question and then the second is what gives power and effect to something else it's like saying what causes things to move, to flow, what fasabikati sabqa, what causes things to go ahead, to get ahead, move forward, mudabbirati amra, what then causes things to um, be managed, or what causes things to be, and mudabbirati amra could be literally like, 
what can be managed correctly, what be, be, can be run correctly. This Qasim, what if it is referring to human functionality? The same idea, Razi and the Sufis come close to it, but not in a way that connects it to the story of Musa salam. So, if it's referring to human functionalities, وَالنَّازِعَاتِ غَرْقَ وَالنَّاشِطَاتِ نَشْطَ وَالسَّابِحَاتِ سَبْحَةً فَالسَّابِقَاتِ سَبْقَةً فَالْمُدَبِّرَاتِ أَمْرًا As if it is referring to stages or levels. So, وَالنَّازِعَاتِ غَرْقَ that which solves the um, the points of crisis and the points of um, of difficulty, the points of abysmal decay, the points, the sunken points of humanity. It's, it's like saying. What what comes and lifts you up? After lifting you up, what gives you the power to move forward? After what gives you the power to move forward, what allows you then to flow consistently and smoothly. فَالسَّابِقَاتِ sabqa, What allows you then to move ahead. فَالْمُدَبِّرَاتِ amra, What then allows for fair, good management. So, if you go back and you see the, this is being addressed to the Prophet and to the Mecca, to people who have embraced Islam and it is like a call to action. Pay attention to what needs to be done to lift those who need to be lifted. Pay attention to what needs to be done to solve the problems that confront you, the problems of the cause, the phenomena of al-gharaq. Not gharaq in the modern sense of the word of drowning, but in the sense of what caused things to, to stall, what causes deterioration, what causes disintegration, what causes people to fall. When Nashitati Nashta is precisely what Muslims are called upon to do in the Meccan and Medinian period, to be in constant state of activism and constant state of energy to lift the collective situation of Muslims. And Sabihati Sabha, 
is what allows sabihat is even in most literal sense is what allows the smooth moving from one place to another so it's like saying what will allow you to sail forward if we use it in our figurative language so what will allow you to solve your problems what will allow you to lift people up what will allow you to energize people what will allow you to move forward what will allow you to move ahead the crux of the matter is how you manage your affairs see it ends with it ends with management what you will manage the oaths that we find in Qasar Sor, as we've encountered before, it's like an often an inspiration, inspirational rallying call to Muslims. That calls, and, I, and there, there's a lot of indicators that that's precisely how early Muslims understood it. When you find some that said, well, it refers to the movement of Ba'ir from one area to, and then you look into the genesis of that story, and you find that what they were talking about is that they understood this oath not about the, the haphazard movement of cattle, but about they understood the oath as as if telling them calling upon them to take care of their cattle to increase their cattle to be kind to their cattle to be humane to their cattle to increase the the amount of exchange and intercourse between them as human beings i.e the travel of cattle camels horses etc so you get the way it was understood was as a rallying cry and an energizing um, very much like the function of pre-islamic poetry often the poem would come and those who understood it as referring to warfare i think they were projecting their circumstances in medina backwards what was the most pressing energizing event in their life in Medina it was warfare so they understood it as energizing them but nothing in the language limits it to warfare especially it doesn't say that it's what makes you run your affairs at warfare it says how do you run your affairs how do you move forward and a quick reminder that it is always whatever you are going to do in order to move forward in order to strive forward the hereafter has to be front and center to your mind and we've encountered this time and again never does the quran tell us do good on earth 
without telling us to remember the hereafter. From the divine perspective, our life on this earth is temporary. It is but a prelude for what follows. So while calling upon us to solve our problems, to get ahead in our life on this earth, Allah constantly reminds us of the hereafter, that the real life is yet to come, not this one. Then immediately it takes us to the story of Musa. And every time Fir'aun is mentioned in the Quran, Fir'aun is always mentioned with the central theme, sin of haughtiness, arrogance, oppression, injustice. I think the import of this is clear, is that, which is something that we, we then, it's elaborated upon later on in surah, like surah al-shura, or surah fussilat, or surah ghafir, to a great extent, the pitfall is when your egos disrupt the processes that we saw in Surah Fussilat, when your egos prevent people from performing the function that they are competent to do, when Tughyan with oppression and injustice prevent you from, in fact, from managing your affairs. It, they, injustice, as the Quran time and time again teaches us, that it is injustice, it is oppression, it is arrogance. It is when human beings worship other human beings effectively. If that is precisely the point in which you are not going to be able you're not going to be able to salvage that who sinks, meaning those in trouble. You're not going to be able to make you're not going to be able to make the nashitat in a situation of nashat or rather, or you are not going to be able to make your affairs flow properly, as in Sabihati Sabha, and you are not definitely going to be able to move ahead. Tughyan, as the Quran consistently teaches us, is the, 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 the direct route to darkness and retardation. It's the way that you fall behind. So if in fact this is the first time that the Quran reminds the Prophet of the story of Musa, 
I am not sure if this is the first time, but if in fact this is the first time, note how the story of Musa is said here. It is the way it is portrayed is it doesn't get into the, the what the, the the miracles are. It doesn't even get into the details of how what God told Musa other than go confront the Pharaoh. But it gets to the crux of the matter of a human being demanding absolute obedience and absolute accountability. The whole notion of what allows for ethics and morality and justice and beauty for the Quran to unfold is the concept of accountability. It is the fact that we are going to be held accountable. When a pharaoh interferes in this process and says, you human beings are accountable to me rather than to God, the entire philosophy philosophical structure of the ethics of the Quran falls apart. And then the oath makes perfect sense that if you are going to forget if you, if one of you or the way you're going to structure yourself is that you're going to have a pharaoh that you hold your, yourself accountable to rather than your God then there is no sabiqati sabqa, and there is no mudabbirati amra, and there is none of that. And then the rhetorical question makes perfect sense. Remember, none of you, regardless of what position, what status you're in, none of you is greater than the maker of the heavens and the earth. What is the, the, the heart and soul of a tyrant? Is to create the optics of grandeur. It is truly, you'd think it would be easier for the sun to crash and the moon to combust than for that tyrant to be defeated. That's the nature of the corruption of human perception that a Quran does. And so then it makes perfect sense for the Quran to present us with this rhetorical question. Understand things as we are, Surah Al-Rahman for instance reminds, of, reminds us of in detail understand things in their proper proportion. Never lose sight of who you truly answer to. You don't answer to your fellow human beings, you answer only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the heart of Far'ana, if we may call the phenomena of Far'ana, the heart of the, the, the ailment of the Pharaoh is al-hawa. What, what is it that makes a human being become so egocentric 
and narcissistic to become a megalomaniac. It's like saying, who manages to confront their hawa, so the megalomania and the narcissism and the egocentrism of the Pharaoh can be defeated. So in turn, you can have al-nazi'ati gharqa wa nashitati nashta wa sabihati sabha al-sabiqati sabqa fal-mudabbirati amra Because if the hawa is not defeated and you are in, inflicted with the diseases that the type of diseases that hawa breeds the disease of the pharaoh the megalomania, the narcissism, etc. then none of that is going to work. And that's how I, I, I understand Surah Al-Nazi'at. Wallahu alam. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. That's it. Okay. We're just, we're just gonna sit for like five minutes like this, okay? <laughs> and just People enjoy. I know that's good. Don't come back. I just want to enjoy the moment. Is yours not your dress? Yeah, it's exactly. perfect. Okay, everybody, we're back. Come back. Where's everyone? If you type in the chat, maybe. Oh, it's okay. I'm sure. I did a video when Henry put his chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Did they see the, the bunny ears? I was trying to escape already. You know, you have to put your hands like, yeah. you know, you're standing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do it while you're holding. <laughs> no, I'm just still enjoying it. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. <laughs> Are we back on YouTube? Okay, well, this, we got this camera. And <laughs> actually, you know, sometimes we get like, sometimes we get like not very nice messages on YouTube. It's like, how could you have a dog? And you know, this is haram. Like, don't you know that dogs are haram? You know, if you look at this face, how, how, you know, then don't watch our channel. You don't belong here. Um, Anyway, just to say, Henry, this is a tribute to our bunny friends. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I told a story at the beginning about how we saved some bunnies, and but a few bunnies uh, passed away. So Henry just stepped up to honor his his friends. <laughs> so um, I'll, let's see how long he'll sit with me during the Q and A. I, <laughs> I think he likes the spotlight. Okay, Cheyenne, do you want to kick us off with questions? Actually, first is the whole surah the vicar? Okay. So, and thank you. I actually no, I wait. I didn't say thank you. I was too obsessed with Henry. Thank you for an amazing, amazing surah. I mean, I think the thing that is just, it's so striking. I, I see um, why you, you it feels like it's more of an early Meccan surah. Um, and just the idea of having, you know, like God sending these energizing messages. It's very exciting also to us as we, you know, embark on this whole journey of reconsidering like the the Quran and you know and the meanings of the chapters like I just feel with every single surah that we learn it, it's it's really it's like learning it anew but feeling it so deeply in like our experience in our time 
Um, and everyone needs that message of just, you know, get your affairs in order, move, you know, it's, it's just very refreshing and exciting. So, alhamdulillah. But, I, you know, I, I, the way we understand Surat al-Nazi'at, I, I would, I wish we would teach our children by going and say, you know, what are the, what are the Nazi'ati Arqa in your time? In what ways have you achieved Sabihati Sabha in your time? Um, because it's a, it's a, urgent message of success and movement and move ahead, you know, get it done. So just uh, sorry to ask, and it may be for us non-Arabic speakers, can you just give us like when you say like, it's hard for me personally sometimes when you're like saying the, the phrases because I don't understand exactly like it's hard for me to follow. So if you say, if we tell our children, Sabiat, whatever, or, uh, well, know, okay, what's so the translation? Like, okay, but because I, because I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not an inspirational speaker. <laughs> I'm, I'm a scholar, so scholars have to be boring. So, so I'll say that you, you have to, you have to understand the, and then put it together inspirationally. So, in what ways are you uplifting the fallen? That, that's the first, you know, that's, that's the first challenge, right? That's inspirational. <laughs> well, in, in what ways are you, are you uplifting yourself and others? In what ways are you moving forward? In what ways are you moving ahead? How are you successfully managing your affairs? Alhamdulillah, thank you. No, so put it, you know, just ignore the Arabic and then put the English together. Okay. Well, it's extremely powerful and, and so meaningful. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Thank you, Sheikh. I had um, two small questions. The first question is kind of for the record and, and methodology. Um, you've made two general categories in terms of Sufi-esque approach and traditional approach. And I assume that the breakdown within both classifications are many. Like, yeah. Um, so generally, would you say when you're saying traditional approach, are you referring to like the Nakhli transmission-based approach system, and then what what further goes into that classification? Because obviously, like, yeah, and and then the Sufi ask, um, you know, we know to be typically weed like um, creative interpretation through spirituality, but what else falls into that classification? Because sometimes somebody like Razi or Ibn Qayyim obviously is like not really in either camp some maybe sometimes in the traditional mm. sense but then they wander on to like do something that's very sufi-esque in, in essence so i was going to ask about that in terms of just for the method and then um uh, the, 
verses 28 through 33 were really interesting where you're talking about the stages and you said that um, our ancestors like noticed a lot of really interesting things with regards to these stages. Did they write about perhaps, because th these are six verses, did they relate this to six stages of creation, like the Sittat A.M. kind of discourse? Yeah. Because I, I thought that that would be very cool. Uh, yeah, as far as I recall, I've never seen anyone related to the... Uh, Sorry, paraphrase? The, 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 the second question first, the... the did anyone, um, there, there were verses from... Uh, 28 through 33. The, the, 28, 28 through 33. Yeah, the, um, this is when, when uh, the Quran is talking about... Um, um, رفع سوكها فسوها وأخرج ليلها وأخرج ضحاها والأرض بعد ذلك دحاها أخرج منها ماءها ومرعاها والجبال أرساها متاع لكم والأنعامك. so let's talk about like the these the stages of creation. but the the question is did anyone relate this to the six days of creation or uh, as far as I could recall no one has done that. Um, but I mean the 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 where there are discussions is that where they struggle with that these verses seem to indicate that it is the heavens, the, the sky, or the atmosphere, the 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 um, uh, the what came first, and then. Um, uh, uh, then the earth is formed in some form, and then life is added to, to earth, water is added to earth, and the, the mountains is, are added and so on. And I, I think uh, the, because that was inconsistent with classical knowledge, um, which classical knowledge tended to always believe that the that the center of creation was Earth, and Earth was created first, and then everything else. So they would they would wrestle with that. Most of them uh, would end up with the literal meaning of the of the of the surah and say, "Well, you know, the Quran says that these are the stages, so these are the stages," but not relating them to. No one. I don't recall anyone like talking about the six days of creation or anything like that. Um, the first question about the these two broad categories of traditional and Sufi-esque, um, and um, of course, you know, if if I if I wanted to complicate things more, I would say traditional, which is the those who rely on transmission or knock like Ibn Kathir and Tabari, the the ones that rely on uh, Ibn you know what Ibn Abbas said, what Al Hassan said, what Qutada said, um, and that limit themselves to what each authority said. 
Uh, and then perhaps the interpretive school, which begins with the riwayat, with the transmissions, but then um, has either, you know, either a, um, has some, some hermeneutical theory of interpretation. Um, the reason I don't do that because it just gets a bit more complicated in in presentation, and um, so I lump the various hermeneutical schools with the traditional because all of them, although Razi, for instance, tends to be more rationalist on on the scale of things, uh, definitely more the philosophically oriented. Um, uh, like, for instance, in Materidi also, more uh, philosophically oriented. And and there's a huge gap between Erazi and Ibn Kathir, or in Materidi and Ibn Kathir as well. Um, but the reason I still love them as traditional is because they are still what Salafis would refer to an Ahl Sunnah wa Jana. They're the sort of the orthodoxy. Um, I, you know, I don't know too many other than the modern day Wahhabis who considered Razi a heretic for a very long time. Uh, but the, the vast majority of authorities within the Islamic tradition have accepted people like Mataridi and Razi and um, um, Zamakhshari, he's a Mu'tazili, so there is a, but he, even Zamakhshari restrains his, the, his theoretical discussions considerably, and he relies on a linguistic approach. Um, what I mean by Sufi-esque are particularly those who follow allegorical methods of interpretation. So Razi really doesn't follow allegorical methods. He he might uh, uh, have if if the language can bear a variety of rational meanings, he will pick what he believes is the most rational. But he doesn't resort to allegory. And the, what is distinctive about Sufi-esque approaches is that they believed that Allah speaks allegorically because there is a zahir and there is a batin, and that the, the batin are layers of batin, and that the, 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 the more initiated you are, or the more pious you are, the deeper you can understand the text, and the deeper you can understand the symbolisms of the text. And that, of course, the, the whole, and here I'm very much influenced by the, the huge mystical orientation in the pre-modern age, which always looked for symbolism in text and secret hidden meanings. And they, they believed that a, an intelligent author codes meaning in the text and an unintelligent author or an author not worthy of their soul doesn't have a coded meaning um, and that's a way they even would read uh, poetry so 
the the poems the poets that achieved any renown within that type of school of thought are the po the the poets who are able to write effectively in code. Um, so that's why they 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 admire Rumi so much or Hafiz so much because they don't they don't just spell out the meaning they don't just tell you what what it is. Um, well, someone like Hanil Andalusi, for instance, who was a very, very sensitive poem poet, very romantic, very so I mean, very spiritual and very sensitive, but but just wore his feelings on his sleeves. He's ignored by by the entire Sufi tradition uh, because there's just no 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 deeper meaning. No codes, no allegories, no so, so that that's basically the. But it's it is you know it it's an interpretive tool. It's not. It, it helps just it helps present the material. Uh, but yeah, you're forced to skip over all types of subtleties. So, one of the things that. Uh, you know the, the um, you get into the uh, yeah there are all types of like all types of layers that you are forced to just pass over in order to present the material in in the time in, in the time that we presented it. You use the terms zahir and batin. What is that? Zahir, uh, the apparent meaning and the hidden meaning. Batin is the hidden meaning. The zahir is the apparent meaning. That they believe that everything has an external meaning that is intended for the laity, and then a hidden meaning that is intended for the initiated. Mm. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first one is, I, I'm wondering why in the first three verses it begins with wa, but then the next two it goes to fa, and it seems to connote some kind of relationship, but in none of the approaches that I pick up on, on differentiating between those two. And the, the other question is, um, if you, were, if you were asking, like in our modern age, what are the obstacles to proceeding in this way, to, to forward movement? And when we were going through the, the three forms of hella, you know, arrogance, greed, and envy, um, I understand how hella could be something whimsical and something that is... But do you, is there any grounds or has anyone ever discussed how comfort might be a form of hawa or the relation between comfort and hawa because oftentimes they feel like in our society that's usually the justification for not you know it, it limits how much we donate limits how much time we give it's usually a, an attachment to some sort of comfort that seems okay, okay so these are two good questions the the first question is in one it 
you have the conjunctive wa 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 in three the first three verses. And then it says Now normally when you have It is no longer a conjunction It is um, it, it connotes Either the next thing Or the result of a thing um, So when you say uh, um, I studied, so I passed. Or, you know, um, um, I played, so I got tired. But if you say, it means I played and I got tired. It, it doesn't necessarily mean so. So, um, th- that's uh, that's the first question, and th- that's a, a in in fact in the third approach, my approach. The that's a big part of the reason that I understand it the way I understood it is that if you notice, it says So these are the the, the three challenges, if you will is to lifting up the, the the fallen or the challenged or the sunken or the fallen behind, energizing so that we keep moving forward. And then beyond that, being able to, sabihati sabha, being able to actually maintain the momentum if you will so what is the result of all of that it is two results so then because of that you can move ahead and because of that you can properly manage your affairs Um, in the other two approaches they usually say that sometimes in Arabic you can use fa with the the meaning of conjunction, um, which is true, uh, but it is not considered eloquent, and of course they, they it's not that they're accusing the Quran of not being eloquent, but they say it, it, that's just the usage at the time that the Qur'an was revealed, it was that you can use wa and fa interchangeably. Um, which I think is, I find it problematic. I mean, a lot of linguists don't find it problematic, but I find it problematic. So, um, but that's a, a good thing to notice. I mean, it's a good thing that you notice that, because I actually forgot to mention that. Um, I neglected neglected to mention it. Uh, the the other thing, um, what was it? Comfort. Oh oh, the question of comfort. Yeah. Uh, this is where actually again that's a good question because it it um, it gets to the issue. You remember, I said the word is house, 
And I translated it as greed. But hirs is uh, not tama. Tama is what we normally mean by greed. Hirs is a certain type of greed. It's um, maybe you could even translate it as being covetous, like coveting things. It's and if you really get what hirs is, is like coveting whatever brings you comfort, comfort, whatever. Um, um, it's it's uh, whatever appeases appeals to you out of laziness um, and indolence. Uh, it's an it, uh, so it's not even ambitious greed. It's indolent greed, sort of lazy greed. Ambitious greed is usually categorized under hasad, interestingly enough. Um, so definitely the comfort-based attitude of modernity would fall under hers. Thank you. Those were actually really important questions that helped me understand. Thank you for asking those. Anybody else have questions here? Okay, so we'll start with an um, interactive group. Um, I'm going to read from here. Uh, Dr. Khaled, when you mentioned the philosophical discussion by Ibn Taymiyyah on love, um, you also mentioned his belief that people that embody divine characteristics can be closer to Allah than angels. Is this by any chance the same conceptually as awliyat Allah, or when we refer to, refer to people as walis or waliyas? No, awliya. Sorry. I yeah. Yeah. No, 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 yeah, Um. Yeah, the first the discussion is is by Ibn Qayyim, um, not Ibn Taymiyyah. But um, Ibn Qayyim was Ibn Taymiyyah's student. Um, but um, that's a good question. Um, interestingly, I mean, the, the uh, Someone like Ibn Taymiyyah himself would have had a very hard time with the idea of a waliullah as better than an angel. Um, Can you define those terms? Uh, waliullah is someone who has elevated in piety in in love for Allah. A wali Allah is not just someone who, who elevates in obedience, but a wali Allah is someone who elevates in love and knowledge of Allah um, that their hawa, meaning whatever they desire, has become, has literally lapsed into whatever Allah would want. So they, they they have overcome everything to the point that they only desire what Allah would want them to desire. And depending on your perspective, if you're in, in Sufism, 
the awliya um, can even have miraculous powers. They can even perform miracles. Um, and have, sometimes have uh, um, uh, exceptional knowledge. So the, the most, like the most famous of the powers of a wali is that with, they look at you with one look, they'll, they'll know pretty much everything about you. Uh, your entire life story, um, your problems, your sin, your weaknesses, your strength, your, and, um, and to our very day, a lot of the students of Sufism, when, when people follow a wali, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the most common experiences I'll, they'll tell you is that they met the sheikh and the sheikh looked at them and understood them perfectly with one look. Um, so the, the, the awliya Allah, this is a very big topic, but someone like Ibn Tamir, interestingly, um, would have been very skeptical of the of the whole idea of awliyaullah. Uh, Ibn Qayyim, however, I think was very different. Um, and and if you read Rawlat al-Mushtaqeen, uh, he clearly, while you can't call him, you can't say he's a, like a Sufi, like Ghazali, for instance, who in al-Din straight out talks about the awliya and their miracles and and their their, their exceptional you know all the uh, but um, Ibn Qayyim clearly understood that that the goal is he he believed that Allah the the reason Allah created that Allah creates what Allah loves. And he believed that it is a sin to say that Allah creates what Allah hates or doesn't love. And so in his view, Allah creates no one uh, as evil. Allah creates them beautiful and good, even shaitan and they become evil and Allah doesn't love it and and it is and Allah continues to love for them to to become good so it is now uh, anyway um, he doesn't come out right out and talk about awliya and I think probably because He's a student of Ibn Taymiyyah and he probably knows that. But a lot of his language on love and what it means to love Allah, um, I mean, some of his more surprising statements like um, uh, he, he says that there are many people who um, uh, obey God out of fear but 
in his, but he says in the Rawda that those people have no idea what Iman is. Um, which is something that you'd expect from a Sufi. But it's, you know, that if you, that it, their, their Iman remains flawed. And although they believe they have Iman, but because they don't understand God's love uh, for creation, they, then, they never come to know Allah. Um, you know, a similar category is Ibn Hazm as well, who doesn't talk about awliya, but he, he talks about love as the center of everything again. Same. But uh, the, the, the idea of awliya, I don't know anyone that, that said someone can be waliullah without love. Um, except in modern Islam, which is an aberration in so many ways. Okay, great. From the same person. Um, also, I love your take on the first few verses of the surah when you say to teach our kids to use these verses as a way to keep themselves on track. When it comes to the part about pulling others forward with you, how can we approach teaching them about situations where they also have to be aware of who is holding them back from following these ayahs, if that makes sense? You know, the, the um, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm just not sure. Um, because you see, I, I think the biggest challenge to for our um, children is uh, when they come to to Quran lessons and they think they're gonna hear something um, that relates to them in any way and then what they hear is something very stale and um, and something that, that doesn't make them feel that their religion has to do anything with um, with goodness as they 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 understand it. While but this is not the problem of the Quran. This is the problem of the teachers of the Quran. When you get when you get people who are essentially engineers and doctors and whatnot, or you get people who have been trained in the Quran and Saudi or in, um, you know, uh, uh, in an institution that is subservient to some tyrant in the Middle East, and then you tell them, teach our kids Quran, what do you expect they're going to say? I mean, the way the Quran where they learned that the Quran is completely subservient to the tyrant. That whether it's the Azhar in Egypt, the whole institution of Azhar has long ago learned to acclimate itself to the, the tyrant in power and to justify the injustices of the tyrant. 
So no one dares to think boldly or to think honestly or sincerely or, and in fact, you know, I've told you from personal experience that uh, they come to a lot of so much in the tradition that 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 challenges tyranny and and they will completely suppress it. They'll skip over it in and in as if it doesn't exist. Um, leave alone, you know, someone who's you know picks studies the Quran in the Emirat or in Saudi or. Um, and these are, you know, and then it's much worse when you talk about engineers and doctors and, you know, people who basically uh, don't know the, the difference between one book and the other. So I keep coming back to the, our, our problem fundamentally and quintessentially is a problem of education. I mean, uh, so many... I remember when we went to Orange County, and I remember a, a, a Grace was talking, and then this woman who looked like she comes from a lot of money, um, looked very rich, and just the way she, you know, the rich people have this look on their face, like very arrogant look, and she, you know, gave that Grace the rich look, um, <laughs> like you know, I'm, I'm rich and you're nothing, and. And then she said, well, tell me in what ways what you have to offer helps my children. And I, when she said that, I thought in an instant, as, as a professor over 30 years, how many Muslim kids I've met in my career who come to me and say, oh yeah, I'm of Muslim origins, or... My parents are Muslim, and they go, you know, upside and down and sideways to hide Islam or to, to, to just distance themselves from being Muslim in every way. And, and time and time again, when I've come to know these students, even in little bit, what I always go back and discover is that they've never heard anyone talk about moral causes in the same sentence with Islam. They've never heard someone talk about social causes in the same sentence with Islam. They, they, they've never encountered respectable models so like someone who's that they think of as intelligent and educated and a winner in life like who is so you know all all the people that they associated with religiosity are people that as young people they think of as losers because they're not impressed by money it's not the fact that you drive a mercedes or you drive what a jaguar that impresses them they're impressed by someone who actually understands something about the world. Uh, someone who's, who, who, in their mind, they would like to be like, you know, not too many people and very young would say, oh yeah, I, I want to grow up to be filthy rich and drive an expensive car and, and suffer from diabetes and overweight and high cholesterol and, you know, all the diseases of rich people. That's not their aspiration.
and you know, and then I, I think of that rich woman who told Grace, you know, in what ways are you help our kids? And if she, if that idiot only understood that she doomed her children, I, I'm, I don't know her, but I am sure her children, without even knowing anything about her, I am sure her children are not Muslim. I am sure, just by her look, by her question, you remember her? A hundred percent, and I would be willing to bet anything on it. And that's what's, so I, I mean, I don't know how to answer the question other than to, to what I've been saying for now 30 years, we, we need, how do the kids of, that come from Jewish families, how do they get so excited about being Jewish? It's because they, their parents raise them with a lot of righteous rhetoric. And in other words, they, they really think of themselves as moral, ethical people who are at the cutting edge of morality and ethics. And they don't think that what they're doing to Palestinians is highly unethical. They actually, the way they're, they're raised was the, the, the false consciousness of somehow they're treating Palestinians more ethically than Arabs would treat them. And so it, then it's okay that they're doing what they're doing. Um, same thing uh, when, I, when I went by, uh, what's the name of the uh, Mormon um, school? Um, Brigham Young. Brigham Young. I mean, I spent some time at Brigham Young uh, and I saw like what wins over Mormon kids. I spent some time at Notre Dame and saw what wins over these Catholic kids. And it's always the same thing. It's it's a good moral example of someone that they can look up to and they want to be like. Like, that's their model of success. And it is not just being someone who's, who makes a lot of money. Um, I mean, I would just add to that because that, you know, if someone's asking, well, what did you tell that woman? <laughs> what do we have to um, offer? Because this was one of these evenings where we, and, and you can actually find it online um, if, you know, if you go back and look at our YouTube, you know, we went and, and presented the Osuli Institute to a bunch of very wealthy people in Orange County, California, which is like the seat of wealth. And we raised how much? We raised much? all about $500. Yes, raised $500. <laughs> So I guess we didn't do a very good job. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, this woman really was ready to lecture all of us about Sharia and Islamic law. I remember getting into a debate with mm. her because we came to present and I said, this is the Osuli Institute. We're going to be talking about, you know, Sharia, Islamic law, you know, what's the difference? I was trying to like make a point about the nuance. There is a difference between Sharia and Islamic law, but it was completely lost <laughs> on a lot of people. I mean, the whole point is education, right? I mean, the way you reach people. Um, and I think that these people were already convinced that they knew everything that there was to know about Islam. There was really no, no room for, for any difference, in, difference of opinion. But I, I think that like for children, um, 
<clears throat> who you're raising because we struggle with this you know obviously with with our kids but i think that honesty is really um you know the most powerful tool because children or you know, young people have such um such a high sensitivity to bs right if you if you bs them they know it and they feel it and i think that our whole community is so used to this you know pietistic affectation bs that just infiltrates everything and so it's a very powerful um weapon to cut through it and even just say listen you know the, our our community is suffering with a lot of different ailments and we're going to have to go it alone you know and and the, the thing that's going to carry you through is a commitment to god a commitment to truth justice social justice all the things that help people and everything in this surah that we learned you know like how do you uplift people how do you move forward how do you make progress and how do you do it even if you're the only one standing there so for example huda the woman you know the the high school student right i mean she did exactly what what muslims unfortunately need to do um from from you know at every level but you know we were we're sort of passing down these ailments to our young generation it's a bit unfair but the truth is that they have to carry it forward and they have you know they're the hope for the future but they they have a lot of challenges in front of them if they're going to do the right thing but I think we just have to support them. And, and, and nothing kills, <clears throat> I, my experience is that nothing kills your children like hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if your kids catch you being hypocrite, you're gonna lose them. Yeah. Um, you know, if, don't preach what you don't do. Uh, and, and just be brutally honest with yourself about your own hypocrisy because if, if they, they have an amazing radar towards hypocrisy. And if you sit there and tell them Allah is about justice and truth and so on, but they think that you're not truthful, you're not honest, um, uh, forget it. Uh, and that's a real challenge. And it, it means that we have to be good Muslims sincere Muslims, good Muslims for our children, meaning honest Muslims. Alhamdulillah, I, I, this is a good chance for me to again thank you. I feel like everything that we're learning through, you know, re-examining these surahs, understanding everything, it's like we're receiving the message anew from the beginning. And I feel like that's really what we need moving forward as Muslims, is to start fresh, start new, hear it again you know, understand, like rethink, like, okay, what was it that God wanted from, from them at their time? And what do, what does God want from us now in our time? And I think that, that hearing, you know, the, all of these lessons is, is just very exciting and, and powerful, um, you know, and hopeful for people who care about the tradition. So, and I think we're out of time. So thank you, alhamdulillah. Thank you for being with us. It was amazing, an amazing session. Um, it's 10 o'clock. Um, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the week, and hopefully you can join us on Saturday for our, our next halakha. Or Saturday, join us Friday for the khutbah. Um, and, and encourage everyone that you know um, to rediscover a new way um, to think of khutbahs, because I think that the khutbahs that, that the sheikh gives, you know, are, are like nothing anywhere else. It's like if people want to see an example of what a khutbah should be, how it should move you in, you know, inside out, um, how it should fire you up and, and ha have you feel your pulse again. <laughs>
then join us and tell your friends to join us. So thank you so much again, and um, salam alaikum.